the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Putting America first. This is The Right Take. Hello, everybody, and welcome. That is another one of those wonderful intros we have put together just for you guys. Again, with another liner, courtesy of our friend, Alex Hall. I'm Eric Lendrum, here with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff. And we've got a lot on the menu for this episode today, guys. Of course, we are talking more about 2022, some more very interesting developments in the upcoming midterm elections. We're going to talk a little bit of foreign policy, not the kind of foreign policy you thought we were going to ever address on this show. Foreign policy involving what some people refer to as America's hat. Other people like to call it uh, the 51st state. Uh, Our neighbors to the North, Canada. And of course, we have to address what's going on there. And among many, many other things. Uh, but to get started off here, we got to have the more breaking updates here of really big developments, I think, in, as I have said before, as we have said many times before on this podcast multiple times, the most important election this year is not even the general election, the midterms. Again, it's pretty much all but given the Republicans will take the House of Representatives back. The Senate, eh, I don't know. But realistically, the most important election is the primary election. All the elections to determine who the nominees will be for governors, for senators, for members of the House of Representatives, and particularly pitting America First slash MAGA candidates, Trump-endorsed candidates, what have you, against establishment candidates and rhinos, particularly you know, the 
impeachment Republicans, the pro-impeachment Republicans in the House and the Senate who voted to impeach Trump the second time, among other things, you know, the big business funded candidates and whatnot versus the grassroots candidates. I would argue, and Jacob, feel free to disagree with me here. I would argue no primary election is more important than in the state of Georgia. There are some that are pretty big deals. Again, we've talked about on the show before. I think the Ohio Senate race with J.D. Vance is a big one. The Arizona Senate primary with uh, Blake Masters is one. Um, you talking about the Senate or the uh, governorship? I was going to say, actually, in general, overall, because <clears throat> between Senate and House, there are a few big ones. Washington's 3rd District, where former Green Beret Joe Kent, endorsed by President Trump, is running against Jamie Herrera Butler, the incumbent Republican. She's one of the pro-impeachment Republicans. Um, so all across the spectrum in all the varying offices. But I think nowhere is it more important than Georgia, because in two elections there in particular, you do have the Senate election with um, Herschel Walker running against Raphael Warnock, but he, he's all but guaranteed to win the nomination. In the primary, you have two very hotly contested statewide seats. And that is, of course, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger seeking re-election and Brian Kemp, both Republicans, both incumbents, seeking a second term this November. And both are being challenged from their right. Now, the question, of course, is who is going to challenge them? In the governor's race in particular, it was a little bit messy, but that field just got a lot less messy. He previously was facing two challenges. One is David Perdue, the former senator who was narrowly defeated in 2021 under very suspicious circumstances. And as we mentioned before, the Perdue name is a big name in Georgia. David Perdue's cousin was Sonny Perdue, who was the former governor of Georgia before serving as President Trump's secretary of agriculture. President Trump encouraged him <laughs> to join the race, and he did. And it seemed like it might as well have been just a one-on-one -on -one between the two of them. But there was a third candidate in that race, a name some of you may be familiar with. And that is former state representative Vernon Jones, an African-American who for the longest time in his life was a Democrat. But he made a big deal out of in 2020 announcing while still serving in office at that uh, he had switched from Democrat to Republican. And he was unapologetically supporting President Trump's reelection as a black man and a Democrat, a former Democrat in Georgia. It was a pretty big deal. He's known as kind of a rebel rouser, you know, giving some great speeches and fiery rhetoric and <laughs> interviews and whatnot. And he ran first. He first announced his challenge to Kemp before Purdue jumped in. But of course, Purdue jumped in at the insistence of former President Trump, who endorsed him. So you had this kind of this weird middle ground here where, of course, Kemp and Purdue are pretty evenly matched, you know, varying between the high 30s and the low 40s, depending on certain polling. And then Jones was always way further back at like maybe 10 percent, the low double digits, give or take. Not enough to guarantee him a spot in the runoff election for the nomination, because remember, Georgia kind of like California, has runoff elections for their primaries. If no candidate in the primary gets above 50%, then it goes to runoff between the top two. That's what happened in the Senate elections. So it was guaranteed that Jones was not going to advance to the runoff. It was always going to be Purdue versus Kemp. But the question is, would he be enough of a spoiler that it would be forced to a runoff that would drag it out even more? So that at that point, regardless of who wins, it's just a messy, bloody brawl to the end there. Well, Vernon Jones has announced he is finally changing his mind. He has dropped out of the race for governor. And instead, apparently at the insistence, again, of former President Trump, he is going to run for Congress in the 10th congressional district. And that's actually directly tied to the previous races I mentioned. That 10th district, which is a safe red seat, it's R plus 15, that is where incumbent Congressman Jody Heiss is not running for re-election. He is running to challenge Brad Raffensperger for Secretary of State, endorsed by President Trump. So Vernon Jones jumps into that race with 12 other Republican candidates. So, I mean, at that point, it's such a massive field, assuming others don't drop out out of deference to him with the name recognition and the backing of former President Trump. He's probably going to win that election and probably going to go to Congress. 
So this now leads, of course, to the question of will the anti-Kemp vote slash the pro-Trump vote consolidate behind Purdue and give him a majority so that he is the nominee outright and doesn't have to deal with a runoff against Kemp. So that's a pretty big deal. Again, I think Georgia is ground zero. Again, Kemp and Raffensperger in particular refused to do anything about the voter fraud. Kemp, in the months leading up to the election, bowed to Stacey Abrams on multiple occasions and negotiated several compromises with her, you know, outsider, you know, voter group, voting rights group, allegedly and whatnot, and Democrats in the legislature to implement several, you know, COVID restrictions for voting. And of course, Kemp was even worse and they did nothing to control the voter fraud as the election was unfolding and Trump publicly called them out for it. And the media, of course, is always gaslighting and saying, oh, Trump's mad because they wouldn't overturn the election. He wasn't asking them to overturn the election. He was asking them to fortify it. I I know the left likes using that word to fortify it. That's their code word. But realistically, he was asking them to secure election integrity. So I think this is a pretty big deal. And we should definitely be keeping a close eye on this one. Jacob, what do you think? I'm, I was not. I was never a huge Vernon Jones fan, to be honest with you, from the very beginning. I, I again, I liked some of the stuff he could say and do. Like he definitely is. You could argue he's kind of a gimmicky candidate. Like again, the big deal, like a black Democrat now switching to Republican to support Trump. Like that was that was a big deal at the time. You know, again, the Blexit movement and all that when people thought that like Trump could get a historic share of the black vote in 2020, which unfortunately did not happen. But yeah, I think we, that well, is my issue is that he swi- he switched so soon. Yeah, I feel like yeah. he would have served the calls of conservatism and traditionalism much better by just remaining a Democrat. Exactly. Yeah. You know, because certain Democrats can help us out by remaining Democrats, like you know Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, among others. But yeah, and I definitely agree. Switching parties so soon and then immediately diving into a run for governor was definitely a little bit too much too soon. But uh, hopefully, you know, Congressman Jones in the near future, presumably, will be able to continue doing his his fire breathing from the halls of Congress, which will be great. Georgia, Georgia elects some pretty good Republicans. Obviously, you know they have uh, they got Marjorie Taylor Greene there. They got a few others. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Speaking of 2022 and speaking of the South, this is such great news. When I saw this, I was so glad because I knew the left would be on absolute suicide watch. And sure enough, on Twitter, where I first saw it and elsewhere, they were seething. They were furious about this. So back in January, a panel of three federal judges blocked Alabama's proposed new map for their congressional district lines for the next 10 years under the, uh, of course, the census, the redistricting. They ruled that it might violate the Voting Rights Act of 1965 along racial lines, and they demanded that by February 7th, Alabama submit a new map that would have at least two districts with a majority of voters being black. They have one already. And they requested that it now be two, which would shift it from six to one, six Republicans, one Democrat in their delegation to five Republicans, two Democrats. But on the same day, the, by the deadline that the lower court gave them, February 7th, on that same day, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Alabama. They, this is this is another <coughs> tricky one, the, the legal the legalese here. It technically wasn't a final ruling. It, it was a stay. They Essentially, they blocked the lower court's order and ruled that Alabama can presume they can can resume with the map they originally proposed and they can go forward with it they ostensibly said that the case could be argued later in the fall like they could come back around they put it on what's called the shadow docket and that it could come back around for a full argument like oral arguments and everything in the fall after the election which i mean by that point it's basically going to be rendered moot there will no longer be standing at that point so it's it's basically this is a win this is absolutely a win for alabama the ruling of course was 5-4 the five real conservative justices against the three leftists and of course chief justice john roberts what else is new 
I think this is just, th this has major implications, of course, because they successfully blocked an entire state's map. This was just lawsuits filed by some, you know, quote, voter rights groups and Democrats and whatnot. They plan to use this strategy in other Southern states, including South Carolina, Louisiana, and Georgia. So if this first ruling is any indication, their plan to apply this to all these other Southern states is going to be just halted like that it's just gonna immediately they'll be forced to slam the brakes on it they won't be able to do anything to harm any of those congressional maps which is good again we hinted at the gerrymandering that is necessary that is being done by republicans in tennessee we talked about that in the last episode it's continuing to be done here rightfully so again desperate times desperate measures it has to happen and this is i i, I think fantastic news this is another white pill courtesy of the supreme court and yes courtesy of president trump's nominees I, again Just, justice john roberts we know he's going to keep doing this to us but this bodes well for future attempts to overturn the congressional maps that republicans are submitting and this of course bodes well in turn for the 2022 midterms so initially alabama had you got seven congressional districts in alabama i'm sorry yeah. you got uh is it seven or eight it's seven it's seven okay so you've got six republican majority districts and then the only democrat majority district is the majority black district which they are legally required to draw according to the voting rights act you have to draw up a majority black district that's why it was like we discussed last week with tennessee tennessee has their majority black district in memphis so they can't have another one in nashville which is a huge issue of concern to democrats and this is one thing that they're bloviating about that they're arguing about that you can't have you can't eliminate nashville's democratic district but legally they can because it's mostly white democrats that are drawing nashville into the into the democrats corner the issue with alabama is alabama already had the black congressional district in the Black Belt, which is the central Alabama, just south of Montgomery. And the lower court ordered them to create two, initially, allegedly because they were claiming that, Alabama, that Alabama's black population had reached 27%, which from what I was seeing, the census, according to the census, it was at 25%, actually gone down 1.25 percentage points. Uh, but the lower court was arguing that they couldn't only have one, which they've had for the past 50 years. They had to create two. So initially, they were ordering the legislature to gerrymander two black majority districts, arguing that black people do not have the same representation simply because they're not allowed to elect one of their own to Congress. And so initially, essentially, all this does is return to the status quo. You still got six white majority congressional districts and you have one black majority congressional district, which doesn't – and they're acting like they're trying to take black people's vote away from them. They're trying to eliminate the black district, but they're not. It's just going back to the way it was before 2022. So it's, Exactly. It's just – yeah, it's not it, – it basically shows – and this is what the argument that they'll make. If you look at the districting in New York, they drew a district in New York City to include a majority Asian district, and it's the most squirrely, snaky-looking gerrymandered district imaginable it snakes it looks like an s it's literally driven um, drawn like a backwards s also another way, thing that new york has done is they've eliminated as many republican districts as possible like new york is going mm -hmm. they're going all in on gerrymandering and the argument from the other side is well you can gerrymander politically you simply can't gerrymander racially so the argument being that it's okay to gerrymander politically so you can eliminate republican districts but as soon as you start eliminating in the south the only people that vote majority democrat are black people so their argument is, goes that if you eliminate these black majority districts, that's unconstitutional because you're doing it along racial lines. But even if you do it strictly along political lines, there is no area anywhere in the South outside of uh, – what's that Hippieville in uh, North Carolina? Asheville. Outside of Asheville <laughs> and maybe downtown Nashville where you have a majority of white Democrats. So th that's that's the that's the issue at stake. Yeah, both sides are gerrymandering at this point. You know, you call it racial gerrymandering, political gerrymandering, what have you. Both sides are doing it. It's it's warfare. You know, it's a very effective tactic. 
both sides should be using it. I'm glad, again, this is another white pill overall to see that Republicans are sticking to their guns. They're not backing down and pulling the Paul Ryan, oh, we're more honorable than that. Like, no, they know that this is war and they're going to war and they are winning so far. And it is so encouraging to see it both well. Again, just the redistricting alone will probably give Republicans a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. That's on top of all the swing districts that could very well be swung back to the Republicans this November. So one of the things that's issue, that one of the things that has probably been in the news lately that you probably notice is the the trucker revolt that's going on up in Canada. The glorious tens of thousands of truckers honking, honk pilling this capital of Ottawa. So I haven't really been paying too close attention just because I'm focused more on American politics than I am sure. Canadian politics. Mm-hmm. But I saw this article. And, I guarantee uh, you this is like the first interesting thing that's happening in Canadian politics in recent memory. It's definitely the most interesting thing that's happened with right-wing Canadian politics probably in, in their entire history. Because what's <laughs> interesting with Canada, just a little backstory on Canada, is their nationalism is inherently left-wing. Because a Canadian nationalist does everything he can to distinguish Canada from the United States. And the way they distinguish Canada from the United States going back to the 60s was to be as far to the left as possible right. without being straight up Marxist. It's like so, they have their very humble like little house, you know, maybe a nice little two-story house but oh, to the north and then directly south of them, you know, right next door, they have this gargantuan mansion that is the United States of America and it's like, oh, well, we've got to differentiate ourselves somehow. So the big old fancy mansion has American flags. So they're going to put like BLM flags in front of their house. Basically, Yeah, yeah they're trying to do anything they can to make to basically give America a black guy, which is interesting. When you consider the anti-American sentiment that exists among Canada, particularly among their elitist class, when we're their biggest—I mean, we're their biggest friend and ally and trading partner. Like who? Where we've been? We've never done anything to Canada. Like why would they? It's very. But when you dig into it, it really is class-based. Their animosity and their hatred of America and Americans, all things Americana. Uh, you know, because what have Americans ever done to Canadians? We've never invaded them. We've never done any. Well, if not, if you count, I mean, not since Toronto in 1812. But other than that, <laughs> we've never done anything to Canada. Sorry about that, Canada. But this really, this actually does. Uh, this article in uh, in spiked by um, Brendan O'Neill. It really does speak to the mentality of the Canadian elites because you, uh, Canada is like I don't remember who said this, but uh, Canada is like America's little brother in that they imitate everything we do and they usually create a crappier version of it. So if they see BLM protests going on in America, they'll try to replicate that with their indigenous protests, their pro-indigenous mm-hmm. protests. And if you notice, if you've followed any of their indigenous protests that they've brought up, it's re- it really is a crappier version of our BLM protest. They bring up issues that have never existed. They invent issues like they claim that there was a mass grave of indigenous children who were murdered by white missionaries. They dug up the graves, turned out it was a complete hoax. And this was after they had already started tearing down Victorian statues and burning yep. stuff and you know rioting and looting, just like the BLM, um, their BLM big brothers to the south. But basically, when it comes to music, film, anything, they always try to copy America and they usually create a very cheap knockoff version of it. Well, in this case, you have Canadian elites who see the way that American coastal elites act and behave and their priorities and then try to imitate that. And uh, O'Neill points out that this issue with the tr- the truckers and with the GoFund with GoFundMe eliminating their ability to raise money, this really is just big tech versus the working class. He writes this union busting twenty first century. This is union busting twenty first century style. This is a multi million dollar company using its corporate clout to starve working class activists of funds. This is a signal from Silicon Valley, clear and loud, that it will wield its power to crush any form of political agitation from the lower orders that pushes too hard against the political consensus. And if you read some of the articles coming out of Ottawa and you see what some of these local – what the letters to the editor saying, what the editors of the local newspapers are saying, the disdain they have for these people 
is oh, yeah. something you take the disdain that American elites have for rednecks and they basically run it to the nth degree. Like they exaggerate to no end and basically openly advocating for the police to come through and just implement full, you know, full spread authoritarianism on these truckers. They're calling it a national security issue. Like the city's mayor, Jim Watson, did declare a state of emergency and implying they could loosen up, you know, they can ease up the rules, shall we say, bend the rules a little bit under which the police and possibly even the military can go in and, you know, bust a few heads if if needed i mean at least that's what they're suggesting that's what these these you know coffee sipping elites definitely are gleefully hoping will happen when you think about it they actually the the advantage really is on their time and this is what i pointed out on our gab channel the other day the truckers are losing money because they're not working Mm -hmm. they're also living on charity these elites in ottawa they're not living on charity they're continuing to work from the comfort of their warm homes and they're not putting themselves at any kind of physical risk from the police. So the, the advantage is actually on their side. And in one of the, in one of the articles, local newspaper articles that I cited on our Gab channel, somebody, the guy who wrote the article said they have the trucks, but we have the time. And his, basically his argument was we're just going to starve them out. Like there's nothing they can do about it because we're just – if this takes a week, if it takes a month, if it takes a year, these truckers are eventually going to get starved out because they're not going to – they're going to run out of funds. They're going to run out of fuel. They're going to run out of food, and they're eventually going to have to pack it up and go home. So they were basically gleefully celebrating the fact that there had not been – that Justin Trudeau had not budged an inch on any of the negotiations that the truckers were demanding. He literally fled the city. He and his family left the city of Ottawa and went to their like vacation cabin or something. Yeah, they have no interest in negotiating with these people. They have no interest in meeting them halfway. They have no interest in, in trying to work out any kind of compromise. No, it's basically, okay, you're going to come protest in our city, in our castle. We're going to leave. We're going to leave the the townspeople here to be annoyed at you peasants, so their hatred of you will continue to grow. So they will accept any form of authoritarianism that we continue to impose because they're going to see our rule as preferable to all you honking peasants. So we're going to flee. We're going to leave these townspeople here with you. You can annoy each other. And then once you get tired, we'll step back in and just slaughter you or put you in gulags or, you know, basically at the very at the very best case scenario, you have to go home and just accept that you're either going to get vaxxed or you're going to become homeless. They have no negotiation. My point is these truckers really don't have any negotiating leverage because of their class position. Because they can't stay here a year. They can't stay here two years. Eventually, they're going to run out of money. And Justin Trudeau, all he has to do is import a bunch of Indians to take their jobs and problem solved. The supply lines continue to flow. The trucks move back and forth. The Indians don't mind getting jabbed if it means more money. And problem solved for the elites. And this is the this is what O'Neill is pointing out, that this is a form of union busting. You have these powerless workers who are trying to form a union, trying to demand better wages, better conditions. The union bosses come in, bring in a bunch of scabs, knock them over the head, replace them. Story's over. Then these people who try to form a union, they end up getting thrown in prison. He writes, this is a signal from Silicon Valley, clear and loud, that will wield its power to crush any form of political agitation from the lower orders that push too hard against the political consensus. Anyone who thinks this clash between a profit-making fundraising website and drivers pissed off at being pushed around by COVID authoritarians is just another weird online spat needs to think again. This is far more than that. It is a scoping out of the battle lines over freedom and power that are likely to define the Internet era. GoFundMe's deprivation of funds to the truckers protesting against Canada's vaccine rules is, to my mind, one of the most egregious anti-democratic acts yet carried out by the California-based elites who oversee the World Wide Web. And this is where we are saying 
way with, with Twitter. Twitter can eliminate whoever they want to. YouTube can throw strikes at whoever they want to, eliminate whoever they want to, and there's nothing that the peasants can do about it. This is really raising awareness, too, to the fact that when we talk about big tech censorship, a lot of people just assume social media, you know, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, whatever, Instagram, rightfully so, but the big tech censorship doesn't just stop with the social media platforms where people post cat videos, you know, in their spare time. It does include the payment processors. You saw this, you know, with the January 6th protesters and the government colluded with Bank of America and other banks to investigate all customers who were in D.C. on January 6th, even if they had nothing to do with what went on. You hear this about like, you know, PayPal and GoFundMe and others banning people. This is the most egregious act yet. Yeah, the GoFundMe account had rate for the truckers had raised, I think, over a million dollars. It raised a decent amount and then GoFundMe just shut it down. Eight, eight million. Eight million. Okay, yeah. wow. I was I did not know it was that much, which makes this next, next bit of news encouraging. But first, they took away the money and then only after backlash did they eventually announce, oh, okay, we'll give the money. We'll refund the money to all the donors. But that's why the rise of Give, Send, Go is so important. Give, Send, Go kind of seemed to come out of nowhere as far as I can tell. I don't even really remember like where when it became a big thing but of course it's been used a lot uh the january 6 prisoners use a lot of them use give send go our friend tom papper with national file said that national file uses give send go for their fundraisers especially their legal funds and their legal fight against mark kelly senator mark kelly which they won by the way the give send go for the truckers <laughs> i can't believe this give send go.com slash freedom convoy 2022 their goal is 16 million usd on Monday, they had raised about $5 million, which is 31%. By Tuesday, the very next day, it had jumped to 42%, $6.8 million. A rise of nearly $2 million in 24 hours. That is just mind-boggling to me. And look through, and it shows you a feed of the recent donations. I'm looking at it right now. $10, $75, $50, $78 interesting $15 $500 $50 $10 $20 $50 these are all small mm -hmm. dollar donations and that is another indication of I think the real threat the left faces as a result of these truckers make no mistake this protest is a big deal and it goes beyond the actual policies themselves we exactly, actually have right. seen a number of the strict lockdown policies reversed Quebec canceled their plans for a tax on the unvaccinated saskatchewan which is arguably the most conservative province in canada they reversed some of their vaccine mandates as, as a direct result of the protests it's not about the vaccine mandates or any of these things it's about the fact that this protest is working and it is drawing the attention of the whole world to show how powerless the elites really are this is what a real protest looks like this is the difference between something like the blm and antifa riots the race riots of 2020 and something like this in this protest, they have been completely peaceful and respectful. The, the worst they got is honking nonstop at like three in the morning, which again, residents of Ottawa complained was keeping them awake at night. Oh, boohoo. They didn't burn any buildings. They didn't tear down any statues. On the Wikipedia page, even for Freedom Convoy 2022, uh, the talking point that is being spread by the media, this absolute gaslighting, I'm sick of this. They say that among other things, protesters were seen desecrating the statue of national hero Terry Fox, along with the National War Memorial and Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And overwhelmingly, there's media articles saying, oh, desecrating desecration of statues, desecration of monuments. I'm just sitting here thinking, yeah, it sucks when a statue gets damaged, doesn't it? It sucks to see like a statue gets graffitied or beheaded or torn down. Why are they upset about the desecration of these monuments to white supremacy? Exactly. Well, oh, that's a good point. You're right. Yeah, Terry Fox was a white guy, among other things. And most of these soldiers commemorated by these memorials, yeah, they're white. But that's the thing. They're not desecrated. You see pictures of it. You're not going to see any pictures of the National War Memorial or Canada's Tomb of the Unknown Soldier with 
you know, BLM spray painted on it. You're not going to see them carved up with, with a pickaxe or something or torn down by a hundred protesters with a rope. No, no. The desecration of the statue was someone put a MAGA hat on the statue and put an anti-vaccine mandate sign, cardboard <laughs> sign in its hands, wow. which technically speaking, if you want to go by like, the code or whatever, or these national uh, federal monuments, technically that qualifies as desecration. Yes. Like in America, you could get fined for doing that, but that's not desecrating it. You take the hat off. You take the sign off. The statue's fine. All right. It's if not it being been, desecrated. If it had been a bunch of indigenous protesters wanting to pull these statues down, the people who wrote those articles would have gone out there and joined them. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. It's it's absolutely mind blowing. But they continue. The gaslighting continues. Among other things, they say like, oh, some of the truckers were seen carrying swastikas around. And coincidentally enough, not a single photo or video has emerged of that. You you won't see any photographic evidence of a swastika being waved. There was one guy with the Confederate flag, which, uh, that again, that doesn't even make sense considering this is Canada. You mm -hmm. know, Canada has nothing to do with the Confederacy. Oh, and it, was, it had a truck in the middle of it. A, a Confederate flag with a truck in the middle of it. Where do you find something like that? Yeah, exactly. That's that's something that's made online, probably manufactured specifically for yep. this purpose. But even then, the Nazi thing, the, the alleged swastika slash Nazi flag, even if that was a person who was there, even if that happened, again, there's no photographic evidence, you would think either, okay, someone did that, they would immediately be doxxed and we would know their name already and they would have been fired. No reports on that. Which leads me to conclude more likely, probably more in line with the one and only guy who had a swastika flag at Charlottesville during that Unite the Right rally. Anyone walking around with a, with a swastika flag is a plant who is there deliberately to be an agitator to try to make the protesters look bad by swinging around Nazi imagery when literally not a single person there otherwise. It's all Canadian flags. It's some America, some references to Trump, some American imagery, because obviously this is very Trump adjacent. But you're not going to see anybody unironically swinging around a Nazi flag. So just the gaslighting continues. And to me, it culminates in this article. Of course, it had to be The Guardian. I saw this headline and this was just too good to not share. I'm not going to riff on the whole article. I'm just going to give a highlight of this and let you guys decide for yourself. The headline, this is by a columnist named Arwa Madawi. I have never heard of her before. It's The Guardian. So we should expect nothing less from what we're about to hear here title quote the whole world should be worried by the siege of ottawa this is about much more than a few anti-vax truckers <laughs> among other things she notes she talks about the uh description of the situation by various officials there she says uh the police chief has called the situation a siege the ontario premier called it an occupation the mayor declared a state of emergency What's unfolding in Ottawa is not a grassroots protest that has spontaneously erupted out of the frustration of local lorry drivers. Lorry, that means truck. Rather, it's an astroturf movement, one that creates an impression of widespread grassroots support where little exists. Funded by a global network of highly organized far-right groups and amplified by Facebook's misinformation machine. I mean, at this point, they are projecting so hard, you could see it on the moon. This is insane. The, she literally just word for word described what they have been doing for years. Everything. Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, March for Our Lives, the Women's March. Those are astroturfed. Those are funded by Soros billionaires and hired agitators, foot soldiers, homeless people, whatnot, who have nothing better to do than just go be paid to be protesters for a few days. And make it seem like this is some grassroots movement that just sprung up out of nowhere. That is not the case with what's happening here with the truckers. This absolutely was grassroots. If this was so grassroots, I love that, you know, or if this was so astroturfed, then why would GoFundMe ban them? You know, why would we, why would they have to turn to an alternative like Give, Send, Go? If this was being promoted by Facebook, then why did Facebook delete a group 
in Facebook, a Facebook group that was organizing a similar trucker convoy to DC. It was like the, the Freedom Convoy to DC 2022. It got banned by Facebook. None of this makes sense, but only in their fantasy world, only in this Miss uh, Madawi's fantasy world, would <laughs> well, this make any sense? Well, here's here's the reason. Here's what they would explain. Here's their explanation for that. Uh, GoFundMe got rid of this group, and for, oh, by the way, GoFundMe was going to just give the money to charities instead right. of even get that back to the people. Original Finally, after outcry, yes. enough outcry, and they said, like, okay, we're going to refund all these people their money, which hopefully all those people will then take that money and give it to Give, Send, Go. But – the thing about the, the situation with GoFundMe is they would argue, well, GoFundMe's CEO is simply exercising stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholder capitalism is where you have all these woke corporate executives who look at all the racial discrimination and all the, the evils of Western capitalism and basically what the, what, uh, what the white man has created. And they try to use their billions to counteract that and bring equality to the world and bring uh, a, a little dose of humanity to the world. That is the idea behind the, the, this concept of stakeholder capitalism. And so they would argue that by deplatforming these people, they are simply counteracting what would be a right-wing rising tide of fascism. So they're doing, they're performing a public service by getting these people off their platform. The same goes with Facebook. Interesting note about about GoFundMe's CEO, Cadigan, Tim Cadigan. Uh, this is his resume. So think about where he stands in relation to these these truckers, where he, what his background is. So he was a pioneer in advertising technology. He served as the CEO of OpenX as a Yahoo executive for the fundraising and consumer search business and as VP of Search at Overture. After he earned his BS from the London School of Economics, he earned his a PhD from Oxford University and an MBA from Stanford University. So you can imagine with his resume, he really can understand the plight of these truckers who are, you know, have their livelihoods being dangled before their eyes and oh, potentially of being taken away from. Oh, but get this. In addition to all that, uh, the McKinsey Group, the Boston-based McKinsey Group, they were primarily responsible for the opioid crisis and spreading opi opioids to the masses in middle America, which has killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. This guy was a consultant at McKinsey before becoming the CEO of GoFundMe. So as you can see, he, his career path has been with companies that are doing everything they can to suck the, the lifeblood out of middle America and reorient that toward the coast. To basically redistribute wealth from the bottom up, from the middle class in the middle of America to the wealthy elites on the coast. And so in a situation like this, where you have a bunch of truckers being able to organize on their own, who are unapproved by the elites, this is something that simply can't stand. So it's not the government that people have to worry about cracking it's, down on. Right. It is the, the tech companies. It's Cause the again, billionaires. Because again, the, the government is backing down to these protesters. They are reversing Mac vaccine mandates and taxes on the unvaccinated. Government policies are being overturned. It is, again, the corporations that we don't vote for that are not held accountable to anything by anyone. And again, they are terrified because this protest is working. This shows that when the right gets out in protests and organizes a grassroots movement, it is effective, whether it's the Tea Party, whether it's the three protests against voter fraud after the 2020 election in D.C., which, of course, culminated in the January 6th protests, the, all the Trump rallies, those are effective. Those effect actual change, and they know they can't stop it. The, at least the government can't stop it. So they have to rely on their buddies over on Wall Street and in big businesses to do their dirty work for them. 
so in unrelated news, there's a cafe in New York that has decided to expand to branch off to branch out to Miami. This is from the Miami Herald. Inspired by Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, New York restaurant missteps in Miami. Oh wait, wait, oh wait, wait, oh my goodness, no! So a Mexican hangout where the late Cuban dictator Fidel Castro and Che Guevara plotted the Cuban Revolution is the inspiration behind a New York City restaurant opening a location soon in Miami. Miami is having its problem with this. Cafe Habana, set to open in Miami in the spring of 2022, according to its website, opens its first location inside a converted New York diner in 1997. The concept is a fusion of Cuban and Mexican cuisine with a backstory rooted in communist revolutionary lore. So why don't they just have a uh, a fusion of Cuban and Argentinian cuisine? Because, I mean, Che Guevara was Argentinian. You would think... That would yeah, make more sense. What, what's the, what's the Mexican cuisine doing here in with the Cuban cuisine? Yeah, that, that's like a weird crossover, a uh, historical fiction crossover between uh, Fidel Castro and uh, and Pancho Villa. That obviously never <laughs> happened. Like, oh my! God. Inspired by a stored Mexico City hangout, where okay, okay, this is this makes sense. All right, inspired by a stored Mexico City hangout, where legend has it Che Guevara, che Guevara and Fidel Castro plotted the Cuban Revolution. The flagship ca- Cafe Habana location was created out of an old school New York diner in 1997. 18 years later, Cafe Habana remains an institution reads the description on the restaurant's website isn't that like also symbolic right there to say a a new york diner in 1997 was replaced with this che slash castro worshiping garbage can you imagine what that diner was probably what it was like before it got replaced with this it was probably like a you know a good old like you know american diner right you know the kind of thing you'd see on seinfeld right well this is this 1997 i mean the date makes sense because 1997 1998 that was when the hipster revolution started to take off in brooklyn oh, that was boy. when you had a bunch of college educated hipsters moving into brooklyn and turning everything into capitalist marxism basically taking all the marxist ideals and the slogans and the aesthetic and make it turn it into a capitalist enterprise that information was scrubbed from the restaurant's website. That is the information that that's the meeting place in Mexico City between Che and Fidel. It says that information was scrubbed from the restaurant's website and Google in the days after people in Miami discovered the restaurant's backstory. The Soho restaurant's website still displays a Brooklyn mural of the late rapper Biggie Small. Wait a minute. Why would you have a rapper of Biggie wait, Smalls? Wait, wait, a mural of Biggie. Wait, wait, what? This, this just gets weirder and weirder. What's going on here? Who sang the song Get Money, painted as Comandante Biggie. Come. A city with a huge Cuban expat population, a restaurant that celebrates the plotting of the Cuban Revolution by the two communist leaders and rebrands American cultural icons as communist propaganda can expect pushback. That's putting it kind of mildly. That's like if you try to open up a restaurant dedicated to Adolf Hitler in Israel. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think's going to happen? Local social media personality, Josue Alvarez, posted about the restaurant changing its origin story on its website. Okay. He said, quote, I'm sorry, Sean uh, Meenan. Sean Meenan is the guy who runs the restaurant. Meenan, a really, really Hispanic, a really Spanish last name. Oh, of course. I'm sorry, Sean Meenan, but here in Miami, there's two things we don't accept. Communism and gringos making croquetas. <laughs> the restaurant calls its founder, Sean Meenan, a fifth generation New Yorker, an eco-conscious philanthropist and visionary entrepreneur. That's such a New Yorker thing to say. Oh, so, my goodness. So here, here's what's going on. So you have a bunch of communists who came to New York, mostly from the Soviet Union and Russia back in the 19-teens, 1920s. And when the Cuban Revolution took place, they, of course, sided with the communists. And they took they took on the imagery. These are the people who sent their kids to Stanford, to Yale, to Harvard, to Princeton, to, uh, to Berkeley. And they all wore the Che shirts. They all supported the, the Marxist revolutionaries who sided with the Soviet Union. Many of them did pilgrimages, made pilgrimages to Havana. They made pilgrimages to Moscow. And so when the Soviet Union fell, their kids, their red diaper baby kids, they, of course, had college educations. They were able to command high five-figure salaries, so they took their money, and they went and bought some crap joint over in Soho, and in, you know, because they had a little bit of a trust fund, they wanted to do something that wasn't necessarily – basically, that would clear their conscience 
for engaging in capitalism. So they would open up a little coffee shop that was Marxist-themed. They would open up a little cafe that was Marxist-themed. And by Very engaging— Very much envisioning themselves as the next Fidel Castro Che Guevara by, by transition, just by virtue of like, oh, we're in a place just like where they met. Could the next Che and Fidel be right here among us? Like that, that can, That's kind of—and uh, that is kind of—that does kind of speak to the mentality. So you would have—you got this area of these brainwashed Marxist idiots— living in this neighborhood and they've got this cafe and they all cater to their own Marxist needs. They live in a bubble and in their minds, they're thinking that people who aren't wasps, who aren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or even white Anglo-Saxon Catholics, that they're all oppressed. So if they take a cafe that's Cuban inspired and they move to Miami, a lot of them probably are thinking, hey, there's a huge Cuban population in Miami. This thing is going to be a huge hit. I mean, they know who Fidel Castro is, right? Like they know who Che Guevara is, right? Like they're going to they're going to love this place. They're not they don't have any concept of what these revolutions that they supported actually meant for the people on the ground, for people in real life. So, yeah, but yeah, you're right. This is such a New York thing. You take an American rapper who is a part of the American underclass, who is railing and rapping against the machine, against the uh, rapping against the man, against the white folks who are at the top of society, and you turn him into an Hispanic Marxist revolutionary, and you create a mural and put it on your Mexican-Cuban fusion restaurant that is based on the cafe where Che and Fidel met. And then you put it in Miami. I don't know. Maybe they're thinking, hey, there's a lot of black people in Miami, too. They might see Biggie Smalls and they'll be like, hey, yeah, this 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 caters to our needs as well. Oh. But this this kind of, this is really a type of hipster imperialism. And this is what's been going on all over the country over the past 20 years. The Brooklyn-based hipster movement, they took their Marxist, basically Marxist-inspired capitalism, and they've been infecting every single city in the country. And if we had cracked down and used a little authoritarianism back in the 60s and 70s, we wouldn't be dealing with this stuff. But it's almost like you, you know, never know. I mean, I hope they have fire insurance. That's all I can say. I was gonna, it's almost like, you know, paying tribute slash praising the guy who slaughtered maybe their ancestors or even, you know, the, the relatives they knew in their lifetime. You know, setting up a restaurant dedicated to that guy. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like that's not a good idea. You know, like that's it's mind boggling, too. It's because I don't believe these are stupid people. They're just, they've never dealt with any pushback or resistance to their ideas or their rhetoric whatsoever. So once again, delving into some aspect of foreign affairs that we never thought we would talk about on this show after first, you know, two for one here in this episode. First, we talk about Canada. Now we're going to talk about the Olympics. If you see the latest ratings for uh, the Olympics on NBC, they have just tanked even lower than last year. I think it's just, it continues going down. It's, it's like the Oscars and most of those entertainment award ceremonies. Fewer, fewer people are watching, but that doesn't mean the political implications of these things are going to go away. So, of course, as you know, the Olympics are being held this year. The 2022 Winter Olympics are being held in China. And there's a lot of talk, of course, about, you know, on the right. And we're seeing a lot of this from Breitbart in particular is one that I noticed. A lot of people covering it from the perspective of China's guilty of human rights violations. We should just keep calling these the genocide Olympics, the genocide games. And as much as I understand calling out China, you know, a communist regime slash left wing nationalist regime, as some people call it calling out the human rights abuses and whatnot. It's certainly the economic warfare they've waged against America. I understand that. But sadly, I don't think a lot of people are even going to care that much about what they're doing in China just because the Olympics. They didn't care, you know, when Disney's Mulan was filmed there. They haven't cared, you know, about, they didn't care about the Hong Kong protesters. It's very difficult to get a lot of people to care about what China does. But I think this one might actually offer a little bit more of a connection that might stick with average American viewers, again, if this were to get out in the media, which you know the media is going to run cover for these people, but that is the case of a couple of American 
defectors, you know, American born citizens and athletes who are now competing for China in the Olympics against their home country. One of these examples is Eileen Gu, again, an American born citizen, a young woman who obviously, as indicated by her name, is Chinese in heritage slash ancestry. And she decided to defect and compete for the Chinese team. In this case, she is competing in skiing and did manage to win gold medals for China. So, yeah, with, with her situation, so just a little backstory, it's not completely uncommon for a person who is, let's say, has uh, parents from two different countries to switch back and forth between those countries in competition. An example would be, let's say, for instance, if you're like a, B, a B-list skier and you want to compete in the Olympics, your dad is German, your mom is American, you were raised in America, you don't quite make the cut, let's say, in America, and you still want to go to the Olympics, okay, well, if your your dad is German – you can claim German heritage in Germany. You can claim German citizenship because of that, and you can compete for Germany. This happens all the time. This has happened this year. You'll have people from who have mixed ancestry, mixed parents. They'll simply compete for another country if they can't make it in in the country they were raised in. The, the thing that makes this issue, this particular situation so, uh, so different is Aline Gu wins a gold medal. This almost never happens when you have a defector like this. So she is very clearly the best freestyle female skier in the entire world. And yet she, even though she was born, she was born in San Francisco. Of course. She was raised in the United States. She went to school in the United States. So remind me, I, I don't do, um, from Alabama, so we do ACT. We didn't do SAT. What is the highest on the SAT that, uh, that you take because she's from California. That's what they do on the West Coast. It has fluctuated over the years. They kept changing the the maximum scores back and forth a couple times, but like when I was in high school. But currently, it is sixteen hundred. Okay, so I yeah, I remember she made twenty points below the max that you can make. So she made fifteen a fifteen eighty on her SAT, which put her in the top two percentile of SAT takers. So she's extremely brilliant. I think she graduated a year early. She's starting Stanford at Stanford after she finishes up the Olympics. But the question that people are asking is, why would she choose to compete for China? Because she decided this back in 2019. She had been skiing for America. She had uh, been skiing. They call, it, they call it the World Cup in skiing. She was an American skier. And out of the blue, she just decided that she was going to ski for China instead of America, even though she wasn't even a Chinese citizen. Now, the rule in China is that if you decide to become a Chinese citizen, you have to give up your citizenship from wherever else you are. It's not that rule in America. You can have as many as you want. So her official explanation for this on Instagram was that she wanted to promote winter sports to young girls in China. And that because of that, that's why she wanted to ski for China. Of course, the reaction was overwhelmingly negative. People were overwhelmingly questioning her why she would do this. I mean, why she, she would want to pick China. Is she even aware of, like, the lack of opportunities for women in China in general, especially young girls? Like- so this is kind of what she was trying to uh, – t- this was her explanation. that She was trying to create greater opportunity for young girls in China and that by skiing for China, she would somehow be able to do this. And this is something – like, Naomi Osaka, of course, is a Japanese – uh, yes. tennis Japanese American or American Japanese tennis players. The one chose, who famously beat Serena Williams. Yes, yeah. She she chose to play for um she chose to play for Japan instead of the United States. Unlike Gu though, unlike uh, um Eileen Gu, she was born in Japan. So it was a little bit more understandable, but she got sure. a ton of black backlash against that. A lot of black Americans especially didn't like the fact that she was competing for Japan. They're like, you should represent black America and all this stuff. But with Aline Gu, it's completely it's completely different. She was not born in China. Her mom immigrated to China about 10 years before she was born, and she allegedly has an American father, although no one knows what his name is. 
No one knows really? where he's from. No one knows what he look what he looks like. Huh. If you try to look up information on her father, it's a complete ghost. No one has any information on. Her. Was the she only, raised like a single mom? She was raised by a single oh, okay. Chinese mom and her Chinese grandmother in California. And she claims that she spent summers in China. She spent a lot of time in China. That she and it wasn't even like Naomi Osaka, where she claims that she feels more Chinese than she does American. But the key to understanding why she would choose China is whenever she was asked about it. This was her answer to that quote: "This was an incredibly tough decision for me to make. I am proud of my heritage and equally proud of my American upbringings." Notice she didn't say she's proud of her Chinese heritage and her American heritage. She's proud of her heritage, right, the heritage which is from her China. Chinese. Yes. Yeah. And she's equally proud of her American upbringings. Sounds to me like she's just happy to have, I guess, in her mind, the best of both worlds. She was raised with all the privileges of being an American, but she still gets to claim, you know, the minority status of being Chinese versus like, say, having been raised in China. To, to an extent, but this is the thing that you, that we need to understand why, because it, it re- this really is a huge black eye on the United States. The United States and China are in a global competition economically, socially, militarily, and culturally. And for a prominent American female skier, the best she's, she was by she was hands down the best freestyle skier in America, the best female freestyle skier in America. For her to defect to China, this is almost as bad as it would have been if an American athlete in the 1980s had defected to the Soviet Union. A lot of people are coming out and attacking her for it, but you need we need to understand why this is happening, why you have a, a situation where Simone Biles would give up the opportunity to win gold for America and just set it out, citing her mental health, why you would have a prominent American skier sacrifice what would be a gold medal for America and give the gold medal to China. She said she's proud of her heritage and equally proud of her American upbringing. So if you're faced with a choice, your heritage versus your upbringing, which one are you naturally going to choose? What is the natural human reaction to that choice? You're naturally going to pick your blood over your upbringings. Her father isn't in the picture. We don't even know if she has a father. We don't know. I mean, obviously, she's not immaculately conceived, (laughs) but we don't know where he's at. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know how American he is. Allegedly, he's an American. But even though she was raised in America, a lot of people are saying, well, she's rejecting the country that trained her. She's being ungrateful. But – if she doesn't feel American culturally, then why would she compete for the United States? And I think this this should create a greater a questioning of why young American Olympians are not feeling that proud of this country. Why? What would prompt her to want to, cho- to choose communist China over the United States? And all over conservative media, even in leftist media, neoliberal media, you have people questioning, okay, well, why is she choosing authoritarianism over democracy? But that's that's not really the choice that she's making. She's choosing her heritage Again, over her upbringing. It's not political. It's racial. Basically. It is racial. Yes, it is not political. It is racial and it is cultural. She feels uh, in another interview, she talked about how she really likes Peking duck and dumplings. She's fallen in love with the culture, the food. Uh, and, of course, in China, she's a she's a megastar. Her face is all over all the oh, billboards sure. in China. She's gotten all kind of advertising deals in China. She's becoming a multimillionaire in China, making her big bucks in China. And she, it talks about how she's fallen in love with Peking duck and dumplings. And I was thinking to myself, okay, so let, let's, let's imagine the situation is reversed. You have a Chinese <laughs> person who has – you have an, an American mother who raises her daughter – 
who is half Chinese, half American in China. She grows up, spends her summers in America. She falls in love with American culture, and she wants to compete for America. What would be a comparable American food that she would fall in love she with? She wins the gold medal and then says, oh, man, I really love cheeseburgers and hot dogs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's nothing. <laughs> cheeseburgers and hot dogs. And this, this is why when you talk about American culture to other people, to foreigners, even to Americans, you ask them, what is American food? They're going to give you some kind, of, uh, some kind of crappy corporate description of it. You ask them, what is American culture? They're either going to say America doesn't have any culture or they're going to give you or they're going to name Mexican culture or Chinese culture, some kind of foreign culture that Americans have appropriated and tried to make into our own. The point is, if the United States is going to compete with China on a global scale, you can't just compete militarily. You can't just compete economically. You have to compete culturally. And if you're not promoting your own culture to your own people, because think about it, think about young Americans today. What is American culture to a young American? Is it Marvel? Is it DC? Video games. But the video games Uh, that they play are foreign. They're made in Japan. The anime is made in Japan. The food they eat is Chinese and uh, and Vietnamese takeout. The you know what they get. The most American food they eat is like McDonald's and other fast food. Fast food, Burger King, junk food that's going to kill them at an early age. Soda. so this is the problem that America, that especially American conservatives, because obviously you can't expect, and even neoliberals who like the country are going to have to grapple with, this isn't simply a matter of course, of course, she supported Black Lives Matter. She supports feminism. She's going to, of course, support everything. Her mother is uber wealthy. She was uber wealthy when she came to America. She's going to support everything that the elite, that the American elite class is going to support. I just want to give one quote that she gave whenever she was asked, because of course, she's been receiving a lot of pushback over her decision to play for China. So after winning gold, which, by the way, she won gold by trying a trick that she had never tried before. So it was kind of her mom told her, you're probably going to get if you pull this particular move, 1440, if you do this jump, then you might be able to. She was in third place. She said you might be able to win silver. She told her mom, no, no, I'm going to do the 1660. She ended up doing that. She'd never tried it before. And she ended up, you know, hitting it perfectly and winning gold, which, by the way, this is a huge. She's going to star in so many Chinese documentaries over this. Propaganda uh, films. Yeah, yeah, she is a walking propaganda mouthpiece for China. And all the interviews she gives, the propaganda is on point. After she won gold doing the 1660 move she'd never done in her life, she said, quote, I know I have a good heart and I know my reasons for making decisions I do are based on a greater common interest and something that I feel like is for the greater good. So if other people don't really believe that's where I'm coming from, that just reflects they don't have the empathy to empathize with a good heart, perhaps because they don't share the same kind of morals that I do. And in that sense, I'm not going to waste my time trying to placate people who are one, uneducated, and two, probably never going to experience the kind of joy and gratitude and just love that I have the great fortune to experience on a daily basis. If people don't believe me and if people don't like me, that's their loss. They're never going to win in the Olympics. That's exactly the smug attitude. She's talking like an American right there for sure. That's very much that smug dude of like, oh, you're just jealous. You're just haters. Like, oh, you just don't understand. Like that. She cannot fathom the idea that maybe she's wrong or that she just it doesn't know any better. Yeah, I saw another screenshot. Someone, I don't know which social media platform it was, questioned her why she was competing for China. They weren't being rude. They just asked, why are you playing for China and not America when you were raised in America? Her response, cry about it. So she has just asking a question. She yeah. has no interest in trying to placate American critics. She has no interest in trying to explain herself or endear herself to Americans. When asked about her her feelings of nationality, she said, "When I'm in America, I'm American. When I'm in China, I'm Chinese." But she very obviously does not identify with her American heritage. She just sees America as a shopping mall. And this is the, this is the problem. This is what we faced during the Summer Olympics. America has just become a shopping mall to Americans. And this is why Americans are tuning out of the Olympics. Nobody wants to watch people play for a country that does not bind them to buttons. Check out these headlines. 
The Hollywood Reporter, TV ratings, Winter Olympics open with smaller audiences. Sports Illustrated, NBC on track for lowest rated Winter Olympics in American television history. Variety, TV ratings, Beijing Winter Olympics opening ceremony draws 16 million viewers, down 43% from 2018 games. New York Times, NBC opens Olympics with worst hand imaginable. Fortune, the second Olympics of the pandemic are set to start and they're already looking like a disaster. Headline after headline after headline showing that Americans are essentially boycotting the Olympics. And they're not boycotting the Olympics because they care about the Uyghurs. The point is, Americans do not care about these so-called genocide Olympics. They do not care about the Uyghurs. They care about their people, their heritage. And if they turn on the TV and they see that American athletes like Simone Biles are not giving it their all, they're not sacrificially sacrificing their mental health and their physical health for the flag, for the heritage of their ancestors, for the nation back home, they don't see a point in turning on the TV. Why would you watch this stuff when you could have a backyard barbecue? Why would you watch this stuff when you can go hiking, when you can go camping, when you can go fishing, when you can spend time with your family? There's no point to it. I mean, I remember back in the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, everybody watched the Olympics. Like everyone. It didn't matter if you liked the Olympics or not. It didn't matter if you understood the game or not. Everyone tuned in to watch curling. Nobody had any idea what curling was. <laughs> Nobody knew what they were doing. They didn't care. What mattered was there were Americans on the ice and you were rooting for the Americans we to bring home the gold. against other countries. It was I mean, your country against their country. It was your blood against their blood. It was your heritage against their heritage. It was your flag against their flag. It was about the heritage and the people who were representing you. It was about the accent they spoke. They spoke American English. They were like you. Those foreigners were part of a different tribe. They were not like you. It was tribalism. And this is the point and this of the gave Olympics. Us, and this gave us such legendary moments. Of course, the most famous, arguably, being in 1980 Winter Olympics, the Miracle on Ice, when not only the American team had an incredible comeback upset victory against the Soviets, but even the, the American sportscasters is cheering. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Like, even the media is, I mean, they're supposed to be non biased, you know, observers, but even they, as Americans, couldn't help but literally cheer live on air when the Americans pulled off that incredible victory. Mm -hmm. When they asked her, another question that the press asked Aline Gu after she uh, she was done competing is uh, about her citizenship, because they asked her, now, according to China's laws, you have to give up your citizenship to be a Chinese citizen. Have you given up your American citizenship? They asked her three times, point blank, each time she made up a, you could tell it was a CCP-designed answer to these questions, just spouting pure propaganda. She is basically, in fact, Sports Illustrated, which, by the way, Sports Illustrated is not a bastion of American nationalism, but the guy who wrote the article for Sports Illustrated on it said that each time she spoke, he was looking for her to press a robot button on her wrist mm -hmm. as she began to spout off communist Chinese communist propaganda. But... I, you know, a lot of people, again, most people aren't, or they've tuned out of the Olympics, so they haven't really been paying any attention to the, any of this stuff. But I feel like that's even worse than if every single American's eyes were glued to the TV and got to really bask in the humiliation, the national humiliation that this is. That our very best, essentially, sure, Mexico wasn't sending us their best, but we are definitely sending China our best. That and is this is the ultimate downfall of any civilization. Although it is funny to see kind of the flip side of this, that we, we yes, we did send our best over in the form of Eileen Gu, but as it turns out, not all defectors get what they wish, and sometimes the universe does deliver karmic justice in the form of another defector we've got to talk about real quick, just to hammer on this, and that is Miss Zhu Yi, another American-born girl of Chinese descent, uh, born in California, born in Los Angeles, not San Francisco, but in Los Angeles. Uh, she originally was named Beverly. She had a good old, you know, American slash English name, Beverly Yi. She decided to defect to China, changing her name to the more Chinese sounding Zhu Yi and competed in figure skating, ice skating. 
and I'm sure you guys have probably seen the uh, the coverage. You can't you can't find the videos of this strangely enough on YouTube anywhere. It's completely censored on YouTube. Gee, I wonder why. You can find it on uh, Twitter, I think, just you know, random regular random users posting the video that of course was aired live because you can't find the replays anywhere. They, you, can, YouTube censored this? Yeah, you can't, <laughs> anywhere on YouTube, you cannot find a single video. You'll only oh see like God. recaps with screenshots and still images that she, of course, while competing, she did a one big spin, jumped into the air, came back down, did a second big jump spin in the air, came back down and landed right on her butt and, cr- and slid up and crashed up against the wall. And of course, she managed to get right back up and continued. Uh, but obviously that resulted in her getting a very, very low score. Then a second time, the next day, she fell again on the ice. And th- at that point, she just started breaking down in tears and left the and eventually left the ice rink with tears in her eyes. And uh, like I said, you can't find the video anywhere. I guarantee you China ain't going to be promoting this one. I, I, I would not at all be surprised if she goes the same route as that uh that, that tennis player who they disappeared a little while ago, who she also was for a while was a national hero. She was a very successful was, tennis player. Was she the one who was allegedly sexually assaulted? She accused by a former, yeah, okay, CCP uh, official of sexual assault, and they very not so suspiciously made her disappear. Okay, so about that, she recently reappeared and she recanted everything. Oh, oh, she, she reappeared and she claimed that uh, people were taking her words out of context. She was never sexually assaulted. Oh, and by the way, she was in the stands when Aline Gu won her gold medal. And you know who she was sitting next to? The her, chairman, her accuser? The chairman oh. of the International Olympic Committee. Oh. The chairman of the International Olympic Committee purposely went and sat right next to her. So when the cameras panned on him, they showed him and her sitting next to each other, smiling really big. And they asked Aline Gu what she thought about that, if she knew that she was in the audience. Mm-hmm. And her, I think her name is Pen Shui. I don't remember what her name is. But it's, uh, Peng Shui, yeah. Peng Shui, yeah. She, she, they asked Aline Gu what she thinks about her in the audience. She's like, oh, I, I didn't even know she was here. Oh, well, I, I'm glad she's here. I, I hope she enjoyed it. Just pure, pure propaganda. Very like, quick. Yeah. Un- don't like, say anything to upset my overlords. Propaganda. Yeah. No, because I mean, that especially, but, that really speaks volumes. The that- fact that YouTube censored that just shows you. Oh, yeah. We are essentially a conquered nation. Every aspect of our corporate overlords, every aspect of our elites are more than happy to bend the knee to Chinese nationalism. And they're also more than happy to crush any kind of nativist uprising in America, even if it's a peaceful protest. They're more than happy to belittle the nativist Americans, Americans whose ancestors go back two, three centuries in this country because they're interested in being global elites and making profits. And right now, China's got all the cards because this is the difference. This is why China is more, uh, I mean, I'm putting myself in her shoes. China is actually more attractive than the United States because in China, China, the Chinese people are actually proud of their ancestors. The Chinese people are actually proud of their heritage, of their ethnic heritage. They actually see themselves as an ethno-state. There ain't no classes in any Chinese universities about yellow privilege. There's, I can no, guarantee no, that. there's no such thing as yellow privilege. And another thing about them is they also don't see themselves as a diverse country. If you're a diverse country, then you're nothing. That you're basically a model UN. You don't really have a country. You don't have a culture. Nothing exists. It's like uh, I, was, I was reading comments on uh, on this uh, this one city. I won't name the city, but someone was pointing out, uh, was asking, are are there any like is there any di- cultural diversity? And someone said, oh yeah, there's. They started listing Vietnamese, Chinese, African, all these different restaurants in the country. And someone commented, okay, good. I'm glad it's not a bunch of white people. I want to move somewhere where there's some culture. And this is the mentality that they're fostering in America. When you foster that kind of mentality, why would you want to represent a country like that? Because who are you representing? This is the this is kind of the identity crisis that Simone Biles is probably going through that calls her mental breakdown. It's because who is she representing? On the one on the one hand, she's representing African Americans. Is she representing white Americans 
or not? And this is probably she representing the whole country or not? Is she representing herself? Is she trying to overcome prejudice? You know, this is a kind of the identity crisis you create among even white Americans because what are they representing? Who are they represent? In China, you don't have that. Everyone has the same culture, eats the same foods, has the same language. And hey, look, faced with that or this, I would take that. Any if I'm in her shoes, I'm taking that any day of the week because people are generally happier around people who identify with each other rather than a bunch of people who are having to walk on eggshells around one another to avoid offending someone. So yeah, this China, I mean, right now China holds all the cards and unless there's a major cultural transformation in America, a radical cultural revolution that pushes America far to the right and basically creates an ethnic culture that, you know, says, okay, you know, you can be part of the group, but if you're not part of the group, you need to leave that type of thing like China does, then China will always continue to dominate the American, uh, the American nation state. And this will be a Chinese century. And China is really perfectly positioned too. To it's not just a matter of racial slash cultural unity, but they see themselves very much as the absolute pinnacle of a long-standing tradition that is, of course, Eastern civilization. America, of course, mm-hmm. being the pinnacle of Western civilization, dating all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans, and China dating back to well, of course, ancient Chinese history, but also way back to the traditions of you know Confucius and Sun Tzu and others. They are. It's the one other major civilization that has a long thousands of years of history of architecture, of philosophy, warfare, culture, great military leaders. And they see themselves, they are the latest incarnation of that. They are going to be the dominant form of the, they, they're going to be the culmination, they see themselves as, the culmination of thousands of years of Eastern history, just as we saw ourselves as the culmination of thousands of years of Western history. And again, given the current trajectory right now, they are probably going to reach even greater heights in the very new, near future, due in large part to our own complicity as a nation. Our own cultural suicide. Our own cultural suicide. That's right. Suicide of the West. And that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in as always. Be sure to follow all of our latest content as usual at righttakepodcast.com. The full list of websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you are feeling ever so generous, as always, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys. 